Let's be honest. Although there are incredible rewards that come along with it, special education is hard. It can be mentally, emotionally, and sometimes physically exhausting. And working with the parents of students with special needs can be tense at times. I had been be behind the table helping parents navigate through special ed and saying for many, many years that we wanted parents to be partners, and I passionately believed it. I think I treated parents like an obstacle without realizing it. Sometimes it's an issue of communication. Oftentimes I've realized that the lingo that we use as educators, as administrators, is not something that people understand. So we're talking all these big words about what was wrong with their child, but not actually telling them in plain, simple English as to what the problem was. And sometimes, as we'll get into today, maybe, at least in part, it's because we need a better picture of what those parents are going through. I think empathy is difficult to bring into a professional workplace because it's hard to force people to get to a place of vulnerability. But until we're able to do that, I don't think we're going to experience true empathy and true connection. If your child has a learning disability, quite often that process is one of litigation and time and money, a difficult emotional journey for the parents. That's why I'm really brought to, you know, I come to the table. I, I think we can do better. From Frontline Education, this is Field Trip. Last year, in 2017-2018, 7 million students received special education services. That's around 14% of all public school students, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. That could include specific learning disabilities, speech or language impairments, developmental delays, autism, or other physical, mental, or emotional challenges. When the numbers are that large, it can be easy to just think about special education in the abstract. And that's why we're talking with Christine Capassi, Sam Hendrickson, and Sashi Gandala. All three work or have worked at school districts in New Jersey. Christine as a director of data assessment and accountability, and her husband Sam as a former HR director. And Sashi is a vice principal. Today we're looking at what it's like for parents when a child first receives a diagnosis, first gets referred for special education. Sam and Christine know what this is like. I have a 20-year-old son with autism, and so autism has been, and special education in general, has been a, a passion area of mine, and, and it's intersected with passion and professional kinds of things throughout my life. Sam, Christine, and Sashi all believe that as school districts work with families with students with special needs, it really helps to understand things from their perspective. I think there are places in the system that are broken, and that I don't think for both sides work as well as they should or they need to. When I compare special education in particular to other areas of care, we kind of have it backwards in so many respects. Um, if you had a medical issue and you needed diagnosis and treatment, you would get that quickly. In education, if your child has a learning disability, quite often, that process is one of litigation and time and money. 
Uh, it costs a lot of money on both sides. It takes a lot of time. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, it's in a, a difficult emotional journey for the parents. And from the point of diagnosis until the time that the appropriate program that's making differences is in place, there's a lot of time that goes by. And it's just not that way with medicine or other areas of care, you know, in our world. So that's why I'm really brought to, you know, I come to the table to really, um, I, I think we can do better. So for me, I became personally um, attached and passionate to this issue when uh, as a parent, my, uh, my life intersected differently than I had expected it to as a professional. And by that, I mean, I had been be behind the table helping parents navigate through special ed and saying for many, many years as a principal and vice principal that we wanted parents to be partners. And I passionately believed it. I want to work with parents. I would invite them to help me with their child and work through things. But oftentimes, I think I treated parents like an obstacle without realizing it. And then uh, my child was diagnosed and became a special education child. And I can just remember the day that he was not nominated for an award that I believed he should have been nominated for. Um, it was a word about excellence in education. And at the time he was in first grade. And when he wasn't nominated for this award, the teacher said to me, I hesitated to call him, but the teacher said to me, well, I would have nominated him, but he's not striving to be excellent. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's only in first grade. As I understand it, the criteria is he's friendly, he's kind, like those were the qualifications for this particular award. And he said, well, he can be those things. And sometimes I see it, but he's not those things often enough. I think he should strive harder for that. And I was like, oh my goodness, does the teacher truly and fully understand what I know to be his disability? And I, I kind of like sat back and I thought, wow, this is a struggle that my child's diagnosed with. And now the teacher doesn't see it the same way the doctors see it, the same way I see it. It was this, this perfect and imperfect storm of frustration for me. And I think in that moment, I said to myself, holy cow, parents, this is what sparks that fire of frustration where we see our kids very differently as parents than educators see our kids. And at the same time, neither of us are wrong, but how do we like build a bridge from this impasse of differences of how we're, how we're all looking at the same child? Because I know my kid all the time, this teacher sees my kid six hours a day. How do we figure out that this kid really is doing the best he can given the diagnosis? Sashi also cares deeply about this issue, but for a different reason. In her work, she is constantly working with special education students. But she also has family and friends with children with special needs, and she has watched how difficult it is for them. Especially um, since they are immigrant families and they have very little knowledge about the education system here, let alone the special education system or even the help that the state provides. In talking to them, I realized how little uh, information is there for parents of such families. 
they need someone literally to sit with them, sift through the information and be able to tell them what applies to their situation, their child. Mm-hmm. And I felt like on talking to them that there is a need for this. The teachers, the school oftentimes does not understand how little knowledge they have. They didn't even know how much help the state offers. And there's so many wonderful services that the state offers. And they don't know where to go, who to ask, what their rights are, what they can utilize. And that is where I think Sam, Christine, and I were like, there is a need for this in uh, the surroundings around us where people need some hand-holding about this. And we being in the education field and also having personal connections, we felt that we could be that bridge for them. Hmm. Sam and Christine, you've both spoken a little bit about what this looks like for you having a child with autism. Help me see this through the eyes of a parent even more. Let's say that I have a child who was just diagnosed with special needs, I found out. What would this be like for me? Are there stages that I would go through or, or what have you noticed to be common in parents when they get this news? That's a great question. And I think it's an important one uh, that school should ask. I've worked with people who don't ask that question. I think initially um, when, you know, and again, I think it, you know, I know it's a classic answer, but it somewhat depends um, on the diagnosis. There are some that are more severe than others. You know, even the way we think about autism these days, it's now a spectrum disorder. And, you know, I can remember a couple of years ago watching Good Morning America and there was a basketball team manager as a kid, uh, as a freshman in high school, he was the team manager of his basketball team. The last game of the season, they put a jersey on him and sent him in and he sunk 13 three-point shots. And they said, wow, autism, you know, he's what a kid. And not to take away from that, but that's not the kind of autism I know. You know, I have a son who's nonverbal, who I have guardianship over, who, you know, if left to his own devices, would not make it in the world. He needs other people. So I think it depends and it's different. But I think all of us, no matter where you are on the spectrum, we enter into the process of grief and we go through different cycles. Um, Some people have likened that to being in an amusement park titled grief. And they're all different rides. There's anger, there's denial, there's frustration, there's acceptance, there's The mechanism of all those rides is fear. And I think parents enter in and the fear just manifests. It comes out in different ways. Um, And they do different, motivates their decision-making and it gets them to do different things. A lot of parents through fear get angry and they go to groups, uh, special advocate, social advocacy, parent groups and things where they get an education all into themselves and they So I think they enter in the grief and being able to understand as an educator where parents are, even if they don't know where they are, is very helpful because you can enter in and learn how to be sympathetic, hopefully ultimately empathetic towards those parents. And that's a separate conversation, perhaps podcast in and of itself is how do we get people to become, to shift and learn as leaders, especially how to move from sympathy to empathy. It's not commonly taught in most traditional leadership programs, quite the opposite, actually. Uh, We see empathy as a form of weakness, and yet it's our greatest strength, in my belief. But so um, anyway, I think the journey begins with grief, depending on a lot of different 
details, it can lead to different places. Fortunately, unfortunately, some people get stuck in stages or on certain rides in that amusement park. They never stop being angry. Is that how you started with Liam? Were you angry? Yeah, I was angry. Uh, for me, it was, you know, it, it was one of those things that shook me to my core. I dreamt when my wife was pregnant of having a stud quarterback uh, or captain of the team. or And I got the opposite. Um, uh, he is a stud quarterback in many ways, just not in football. <laughs> um, he's a great kid. But yeah, it, you know, there is there's anger, there's heartache, all sorts of emotions that parents go through. And a lot of misdirected anger. You know, we we blame, we like to blame things and find fault. Sometimes uh, those answers just come up empty and you, you really can't, you just have to accept it. Can you tell about when you took Liam to the grocery store? Early on? Yeah. Well, you know, I did a lot of reading and we read, you try to educate ourselves and there's good and bad with the internet. It's sometimes too much information is available and too many perspectives are available, but... I could tell you, you know, when I, um, early on, I tried, there's, uh, you know, with autism, my son Liam is autistic and he's, um, I'd say somewhat moderate to severe autism. I mean, he's in a special school. He's never been in a regular education school at all, but, you know, it was uh, painstaking. You know, we would go to the grocery store. I tried to work with desensitizing him to things in public. And that would be anything from noises, people, fluorescent lighting, any of those kinds of things. And we you know, a lot of behavioral meltdowns. Um, I can remember being in line and him just hitting me. And it could be for whatever reason, a noise, a, uh, something he saw, or just the, you know, the lighting, the frequency. And people looking at me and saying that I'm a bad parent, that I, I don't have, uh, you know, you, you should become an old school parent. Parent him like you were raised, you know. Uh, you know, you just need to smack him, put him in timeout, you know, and they don't understand, you know, because autism doesn't look different. It's not a disability on the surface um, that looks different unless you sit and watch behavior. Sam, you you mentioned you, you talked about the the different rides of denial and anger and guilt. And you said that the mechanism is always fear that comes out in different ways. Fear of what? Ultimately, special ed parents, you know, there's these moments, I think, for most of us where um we're lying in bed and our heads are on our pillows and we're about to drift off to sleep. It's in those moments, I think, that a lot of people, whether they admit it or not, it's probably their most truthful moments in their day where they're processing things, they're downloading, they're getting ready for sleep. And it's you and whatever spiritual thing you ascribe to, you know, those conversations. In those moments, most parents of special ed kids Fear this, they fear, who will take care of my child when I'm not here? That is something that keeps them up at night. It's uh, a part of the basis of their fear. It's one of those core fear things. More than just, you know, my, I'm walking my kid to the bus stop, I'm getting him on the bus, and I am putting so much trust in this system called school from every aide, teacher, administrator who comes in contact with my kids. Will my son be protected from other kids making fun of them? Will he be able to say what he needs and get what he needs? Um, those are sort of the daily kinds of fears. But at the end of the day, you know, most of the time we outlive our kids uh, outlive us. At least that's the sort of the way of the universe, right? Not always, but so we have this fear of who will take care of my son or daughter when I'm not here. 
And that's um, something that I think lives within everybody. When you hear that your child is not like other children and there's no cure, there's no panacea, there's just trying to get a program in place, trying to, you know, day by day get progress and trusting that all the progress, even though you don't see it at home and they see it at school, trusting that, it, you know, um, is getting better. All of those things, I think, for parents get at this concept of fear for them. Uh, I can tell you that the parents that I know, and um, when we've gotten honest uh, about our experiences, from the moment I heard the neurodevelopmental pediatrician tell me that my son had autism, it was almost like the cells in my body changed and got programmed for fear. And it's hard to reprogram them and trust that things are going to be okay. It just... And you're, so you're driven by fear, almost on a cellular level, I would say. And I think that drives a lot of the parents. I really do. Hmm. That's fascinating. Sashi, I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, too. You mentioned uh, having friends who uh, might not be coming from this country who uh, are walking into an unfamiliar education system, and especially if they're experiencing some of the challenges that come along with having uh, children with special education uh, issues, not even knowing what questions to ask. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that really looks like um, in the day to day? Ryan, there's actually two issues here that I've often seen um, with um, these families. One of the major issues is culturally accepting something like this. I've seen it in my family with my own cousins, relatives, and friends. They are not open to accepting that there might be something wrong with the child and the child needs help. So it is very, very difficult for them. Um, South Asian culture by itself, um, I'm sure everybody knows that they're so highly academic driven. So for them, they see it as a personal failure if the child doesn't do good in academics. So they're not dreaming about stud quarterbacks, but they definitely are dreaming about Ivy Leagues. And that is every parent's uh, dream in a South Asian family. So for these parents to know that their child is developing at a very slow pace is something not acceptable and they make excuses for it so even if the doctor tells them your child is autistic they refuse to use that terminology and they would say like oh he just needs to grow up and he'll be fine it just takes time and he'll be fine and they would not talk openly about it i've seen some of my friends not bring their child to parties or events just because there will be questions and comparisons with other students, with other kids who are of the same age level. So that cultural piece itself is a big, big hurdle. Sashi said that when people come from another country, another culture, some of these issues are compounded because those families may not have a clear picture of how the education system works in the United States. Even when a family says, my child needs support, they often don't know how to get him the help he needs. So coming from another country, the education system, it, it's always difficult. I did my undergrad um, in India, and then I came here for my master's, and it took me a long time to understand how the system works. For example, in India, when you take your undergrad classes, it's pre-prescribed. You just have like... 10 or 11 subjects and you take them 
for the year and you're done with it. You have no choices. Whereas when I went in for my master's, they gave me like three sheets of paper saying, here's all you can take and you can design your schedule. You can do what you want. You can take the electives that you want. You can pretty much tailor it to your own timing and your needs and whatever subjects you're interested in. I was like, wow, really? Like you telling me like I can choose to study what I want to study and what subjects interest me. So that took some time. And now with my kids being in college, I have a better understanding of that. But then the other parents are not there yet. And that is because I'm in the education field again, but they are not there. So it's harder for them. So when I sit with them and talk, they have so many basic questions and they say that we kind of feel shy asking these questions to the teachers because we don't want to come across looking stupid. And so I help them with that. But there are so many who don't ask these questions, who don't have a friend who's an educator. Where do they go? What happens to them? I think a big chunk of this problem would be solved with creating awareness Having some outlets where parents can come together, share about this, ask questions, know that there is an expert out there who can help them and who they can talk to and maybe meet like-minded parents who are in the same situation and know that they're not alone, know that they can talk to someone. And, you know, my one of my friends is struggling currently because the child is um, he's finishing up high school and he doesn't know what next like where in college like where do you go like the school aid and everything stops like the hand holding stops at, at 12th grade so what about college it's all on the parents and I usually come to Sam and ask questions because Liam is older and he's experienced in that now so like Sam what did you do what did you do with Liam and then I take that information back and I give it to them so I created the channel for them but then we think about all those parents who don't have this hmm. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the question of what you do as an administrator. And regardless of whether you're a parent coming from outside the U.S. or or not, getting that news of your child is is going to need extra supports, is going, either has special needs or a learning disability, that's a, that's a long road that the school is going to need to walk beside those parents uh, on for a long time. Those parents are going to be caring for a long time. So I would love to hear from Christine and Sam as well. What, what are the most important things for those at the school, whether they be teachers, the special education department, the principals, to do or keep in mind? And are there certain missteps that are often made when working with families at these times? So, Ryan, I think that Sashi brought up a really important point. In um, in our school district, uh, we have a majority immigrant population, a lot from Southeast Asia. And so I think an important piece in any population that school administrators work with is to really identify the values and needs of your school community and understand that, as Sam was talking about, the emotional process that parents are going through regardless of what their background is. So, for example, um, Sashi said something that made me think of this. Very often, our school community, the parents want our students to go to Ivy League school. That's their ultimate dream. And so when they notice, I was a principal at the upper elementary, that's when um, we, we noticed that the academics started getting much more difficult for students who, let's say, had a diagnosis. 
with um, a special need. So parents would come in and, and they appeared to be in what we would think of as denial. Um, and we would identify this by, we notice on our end, for example, that the student is struggling mightily. They, they aren't reading full sentences. They aren't able to um, comprehend paragraphs or words or text and those sorts of things. And we would bring parents in to talk about this. The parent very often would deny an individual education plan, an IEP. And we would sit down with the parent and say, so this is what we're seeing in the classroom and try to describe the struggle, try to help them from the teacher's perspective, from the guidance counselor's perspective and so forth. And then at the end of the meeting, we think we've made some progress. The parent would say to us, can you just give us more textbooks to work harder at home? We want more homework. We'll help mm -hmm. him with the homework. They'll overcome this, this hurdle if we can just work harder with the child. Christine said that in those moments, it could be really easy for an administrator to throw in the towel. They're trying hard, they're bringing a ton of expertise to the table, and the parents just want more homework. And that's where you have to remember that you need to be in this for the long haul. You say, okay, well, this is where we are in September. Let's continue to hold hands with the family, not just the child, and really help them to understand that the child's struggles are not a source of shame or embarrassment, but the child will make some progress, just uh, not maybe at the, at the rate and speed that, that the family had hoped, and that that's okay. I would say that that's one of the most important things educators can do to work with families or administrators can, is to have some patience and understanding that this process is going to take a very, very long time, depending on the stage that you're able to work with the family and intervene with the family. I, Ryan, I, um, the second part of your question, I think is a, is a significant one. Are there missteps? And I think there are. And there's one that, um, you know, has been a reoccurring misstep and I've just seen it from parent and administrative perspectives, you know, the parents, the kids, the school. And it's so common. And so about a year or two ago, I was volunteering in my community and I was there as a parent of a, a special ed parent advisory group here in New Jersey. Uh, the acronym is CPAG, but it's a special ed parent advocacy group uh, or advisory group. I'm sorry. There are other advocacy groups. And unlike a PTA or a PTO, this is a group of parents who gets together and meets with the administration of the school district to just give advice or to kind of like, hey, can we work together? Here's some things we're noticing. One of the reoccurring themes constantly was parents would come and say things like, my I would like my child to have an augmentative device. I want my child to have an aid, a one-on-one -on -one aid. I want my child to have speech therapy by themselves and not in a group. And I know you do it with other kids. I want it for my child, too. Sometimes administrators would slip up and say, we don't have the funding for that. That's not what your child needs. I can only talk about you with your child and all that stuff. And what was happening, I believe, was that, you know, the parents are, again, coming from underneath, even though they're coming in, in angry. Underneath all that is fear. And one of the ways I think schools can address fear is by becoming really aware of the places where you can establish trust, but also these missteps are these places where you're losing trust and you're not even aware of it. So there's places in schools where we lose trust of parents and we're not even aware, and I'll explain it this way. 
those parents go have coffee with other special ed parents and they compare their children and compare their notes. So let's pretend for a moment that two kids have the same learning disability and a very similar IEP, Individualized Education Program. And one kid is getting a certain kind of service and another is not, that parent feels left out. Why did they say no to me? Or why didn't they even offer it to me? In that moment, the district caused a loss of trust with that parent. That causes more fear, and that comes out in more anger. Those angry uh, feelings cause the parent to make more decisions, and they often feel that the only way the district will hear them is if they hire an attorney and all the rest. So what do you do? How can districts do things differently? So Ryan, I'll speak in a metaphor here. Let's pretend you're not an American, for example, um, and you're coming in and you're visiting me, Sam, from a different country. You're visiting New Jersey and you want to know what's special about New Jersey. I don't know. One of the things that comes to mind, we're known for diners um, in the Garden State. We go to a diner and you say to me, before we walk in, before you look at the menu, you say, I really, I really want a grilled cheese. I look at the menu and we're reading the menu together and there's no grilled cheese on the menu. But we're sitting at the counter at this diner and the person to our left has eggs with toast and butter and the person to our right has a cheeseburger. And you and I, as smart people, are looking. There's no, we ask the waitress, can you, you know, why, is there grilled cheese? No, it's not on the menu. But you and I know that there's a flat top back there. We see bread, we see butter, and we see cheese. A grilled cheese can be made. It's not on the menu. So I think in this metaphor, districts all the time say, we don't make grilled cheese. But the parents already know from their coffee sessions, their advocacy groups, their support network, that you can make grilled cheese, or at least you can offer it. And the moment we say, no, we don't have grilled cheese, it's not on the menu, we, call, we lose trust. We don't realize, I don't think districts really realize, or administrators realize in those moments, it's so subtle, but you've lost trust, and you've just created more anger, and you're entering into that thing. So I think some advice would be, one, be aware of it, and two, so what do you do? You, you, you don't think it's right that this kid needs the grilled cheese sandwich, but you can say to the parents, I have everything to make a grilled cheese. I know it's not on the menu. It's not a common thing that we provide. However, if the time is right and you need a grilled cheese, we'll give you the grilled cheese. That's an easier answer than what parents typically hear. When those parents say, why doesn't my kid, I want my kid to have you know, grilled cheese. The districts often just come and say, it's not on the menu. We don't make it. And they keep it a secret that they give other people services. So I think that grilled cheese metaphor, for example, is a simple way to kind of think about what's happening and what continues to happen. And there's other places like that where trust is just lost. Um, and I don't think there's this awareness that in those moments, in those conversations, administrators or districts really realize that they've lost trust with a family in that simple moment. You know, just acknowledging it. Hey, yeah. That other person does have the grilled cheese sandwich. Here's why we don't think your child needs the grilled cheese sandwich, but we could do it. Or why don't we make you a half a grilled cheese sandwich and just try it? Maybe it'll work. We don't do that enough and we lose trust. And the loss of trust, I think, is the number one factor that um, gets us to our current reality of litigation and expenses and time. Hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Sure. Sashi, yeah. can you speak to that issue from mm -hmm. uh, an, an administrator's perspective? Do you find yourself trying to work with families and, and helping them get the grilled cheese sandwich when they need it? And if so, what does that look like? 
Um, I just want to add to what Sam and Christine said. Everything that they said is something that we do see in the school, but there's one more additional that I would like to add. So continuing with the grilled cheese metaphor, there are people who come in who think that they want a grilled cheese sandwich, but they don't know how to ask for it. They don't know the language. So oftentimes I've realized that the lingo that we use as educators, as administrators, is not something that people understand. So sometime back, I remember there was this um, couple who went in for an IEP meeting and then they wanted to come see me about something else. And I just invited them into my office, sitting and talking to them. And they just flat out asked me, I didn't understand a word of what was said in that IEP meeting. They just didn't understand the language because the people in that room were talking all these big words about what was wrong with their child, but not actually telling them in plain, simple English as to what the problem was. So they understood the medical terms, but not really what was going on. So I had to sit down and like break it up them and explain to them what was happening with their child. So that is something that we've seen even in a regular classroom. We've seen teachers do. Like when we have parent-teacher conferences, the parent comes in and I've seen teachers, I've caught myself say that, oh, your child is very social. That's not what I really want to say. I want to say your child can't shut up in classroom. He keeps talking. And I can't say that because I've been warned not to say anything negative. You start with a positive, you say positive, you spin a positive way of saying things to the parents. And we've been taught this. So somewhere in that, the message is lost. So I'm not able to convey the message to the parent that your child is very talkative and that stops him from focusing in the classroom and listening and, you know, being on top of things. So sometimes maybe educating the teachers and we also as administrators trying to understand where that other person is coming from. What is their background so that we can come down to their level and explain what they need to understand, I think is very important and which we completely lack, I think. Well, earlier, Sam, uh, you mentioned the the idea of moving from uh, moving to sympathy and then moving from sympathy to empathy. I'm thinking that empathy that probably not only uh, is important for people in your positions or administrators, but also for teachers, also for paraprofessionals, also for everybody who is interacting with these children and with these families. So how do you uh, either work with yourself or work with um, the, the people in your schools to have that kind of empathy and to make sure that they're invested in giving these parents and guardians the support that they need? That's, yeah, I think you're right. It's a big, big topic. And, you know, it's a popular topic now, you know, from Dr. Brene Brown, from her breakout book, Daring Greatly, to a lot of the work she's done around empathy, her TED Talk, um, you know, connecting with Oprah and becoming part of her network. It's really brought to the surface I think a reality about empathy and some new thinking about empathy that was always there, but we just haven't thought of, for example, that it really is a strength and not a weakness. I think a lot of people perceive it as a weakness and don't go there because in order to be empathetic, you need to be vulnerable. 
and it is difficult for people. It's also kind of like oxymoronic. A lot of, as I was saying before, a lot of leadership programs, you get into this place and I forget who it was that says, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a severe statement, but I do think people get kind of intoxicated with their power and in titles and that. And that's sort of the opposite of getting vulnerable. You know, leaders aren't naturally vulnerable people because I think they fear that people will see them as weak. But yet it's what I think we need in education to really start moving this in the direction that it needs to be moved in. So I think the hard work is how do you, you can't just force people into a place of vulnerability, but it's really how you become empathetic. So in other words, sympathy on this thing, uh, a continuum, if you will, sympathy is that I can, um, uh, you know, say a sentence like, I'm sorry that this has happened to you. I can feel sorry for you because this has happened. There's no connection in sympathy, really, or minimal connection. People don't feel connected when, we, when we're sympathetic towards their thought. They feel really connected when we're empathetic, when there's the sense that they have that we get what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to do that because I've been open to parents that I have a son with autism. Um, I've been in the places, but I know the feeling, I know the, the energy, I know the, the stage that, you know, I can identify and that's served me well. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, all parents or only the parents of special ed kids are going to be the best, you know, the best administrators to connect with these parents. But I do think it's possible for any, uh, administrator to kind of say, well, I'll give you a perfect example. I don't know how to train this necessarily. Maybe it's by example in sessions, and I think that I think it can be trained. But one exercise that I would offer is simply this. Uh, I had a teacher come into my office years ago and sat down at my table and started to cry and explained to me that she um, had a miscarriage. And this is, Ryan, after my knew that she announced her pregnancy to the whole school. Uh, the Sunshine Committee had bought gifts and we had the sheet cake and all that in the faculty room and they knew the gender and you know, everything was decorated in blue. It was really difficult for her um, as, as a mother, as a, as a woman, you know, her family, much less her professional family. Um, I had never experienced that, uh, not only as a man, but I just hadn't experienced that, but I have experienced loss and I've experienced deep loss. So I found myself in that moment kind of like, okay, can I identify what she's experiencing? Well, you know, she, I, it's loss. That's one of the things she's grieving. Where, where in my own life have I, can I connect to that feeling, that memory? And you know what I found my uh, coming out is like, I said to her, I don't know that there's anything that I can say that will make a difference. And I feel bad about that. And I just sat with her. You know, it didn't try to fade or fix it because there's really nothing you can do to fade or fix it. Sometimes we over talk things because we're just trying to be sympathetic. But if when you get to a place of empathy, I knew in the times that I've lost great things, it was just people sitting there that made the difference. Talking sometimes made it worse. So I said that to her and Years later, she came back and thanked me for that moment and some of the moments after, because what just being there and saying, you know, like, look, is there anything I can do, you know, and then just thinking of things. But 
So anyway, getting back, I think empathy is difficult to bring into a professional workplace because it's hard to force people to get to a place of vulnerability. But until we're able to do that, I don't think we're going to experience true empathy and true connection. And if we can begin to kind of make ways there with these parents, I think the parents are going to feel connection. And when they feel connected, they're not going to be as afraid. That's when the partnership will really start to begin and take off. Um, where we can come to a table, talk about our needs, talk about our fears, what we think we might want, even if it's the grilled cheese or not the grilled cheese, but just say those kinds of things. I think things are going to get better. I, I think it's a long road, though. But I think that's the third of the key. So I would do empathy training. I, I think it would be a very powerful thing. Um, I don't know the um, I know that uh, Brene Brown has recently just started uh, an empathy building program for teachers that she's running online right now. I'm interested in doing that, but uh, the work is just beginning, um, truly. Um, but I think especially with this population of parents, um, it needs to happen. I'd love to hear real briefly from, uh, also from you, Christine, and, and you again, Sashi, on, from your perspective, what can leaders in schools do? What, what are some tangible things that they can do to better support these families and to help their um, teachers and staffs better support these families who are in the middle of this uh, really difficult and challenging process? Um, I can say, I can think of two things off the top of my head. The first is um, to build relationships. It sounds cliche, but that would look like uh, reaching out to call a parent who may have just pitched a fit in your building, you know, just to call and say, make it okay. You know, like, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, how are you? I know yesterday was a rough day. You know, I'm still here to listen. We all get angry sometimes. I understand that. Um, but I want you to know I'm still here to listen. And parenting is hard. I'm a parent, too. Just to reach out and, and to keep that relationship, keep that relationship going and keeping that relationship strong by doing unconventional things like just to call when calling isn't something you might do normally. You know, sometimes we have these these parents who, um, you know, hire legal representation and we're afraid if I have to be in my corner and you have to be in your corner and we can't bridge in between. But really, that's that's those are just manufactured ideas of how the relationship ought to be sometimes. Yeah, I agree with um, Christine. I think building relationships and listening uh, is very, very important. They are like the two main things. And along with that, I think I would just add one more thing, which is offering workshops and meeting places for parents, like just invite them, have them come over, have your, you know, CSD team talk to these parents and educate them and tell them about the process and what is going on. And um, even like what their rights are, what they can get from the state, what how the school is helping, like all those things just for them to see it laid out in front of them and for them to see like, here's what all is available. Here's the buffet. It's not just grilled cheese. And here's how we are helping you. Because honestly speaking, the schools do a lot. They do do a lot. It's just that sometimes it doesn't reach the parents in the right manner and sometimes it feels like we are not helping them but they don't see everything else that is being done so sometimes just telling them here's what all we did 
maybe we are refusing this one thing, but there are 23 other things that we've done for your child. So sometimes that also goes a long way in just making them feel better that, okay, things are on the right track and eventually it will get there. Maybe explaining that no, why are we saying no right now? There is a reason. And sometimes just being open and sharing that out and explaining why would make them feel better than like a plain denial. It's like when you tell your child, no, you can't have their candy. Why? Why can't I have it? So it's it's hard for them. So I think just that one piece along with what Christine said is, well, bring it home. Ryan, I can offer one other thing that, you know, I can't remember when or if I've ever heard a leader or maybe a child study team say to a parent, I don't know. I don't know what it is, if it's just the culture as educators, a lot of us were former teachers and former, you know, teachers are supposed to have like all the knowledge, right? Um, but if you're asked, you know, and I've seen people more often, their Achilles heel with it is they filibuster. They will say something when they really don't know. And then I've been witness or blind copied or carbon copied on emails where we have to go back and say, no, here's what it really is. Or, you know, sorry, this is, let me get the, we provide clarity. When in the moment, if you're a parent and you're filled with fear and you're trying to get empathetic connection, if somebody says to you, I don't know the answer to your question, but I'll figure it out. To say, I don't know as a professional, feels unprofessional. It feels like I should know everything or I'm too new and new is vul. But it's an expression of vulnerability to get up in front of people, to be in a group of people with parents who you know might take what you say out into a support group or to the public or might circle back and get to your boss. But to say, I don't know, is an expression of vulnerability. And everybody has been there. Everybody has not known something. That's So it's a place for connection to say, I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't know. Let me get back to you. I can't tell you the last time I've heard it, if I've ever heard it. It's rare. But yet I think it's something that we can do is just to train people to say, I know you don't know all the answers. And when you don't know, just tell them you don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no shame. Um, but again, it's all those feelings come up for professionals when they're about to say that they would rather i think filibuster something and then provide clarity or defend what they said later on and it just gets them jammed up and a little bit further down because the parents know you don't know <laughs> and that causes more anger so that's one thing i would offer say you don't know when you don't know and get the answer and just go forward that way it's it's a way to kind of connect with people that's great christine capassi sam hendrickson sashi gandala I want to thank you all for your time and vulnerability here in sharing your stories. And I really appreciate everything that you have brought to this conversation. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Thank too. you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much. Field Trip is a podcast from Frontline Education, offering frontline special ed and interventions. It's software that helps schools manage programs for special education and special student populations, making it easier to work with IEPs, RTI and MTSS programs, English learner programs, Section 504, and more. To find out more, visit frontlineeducation.com slash fieldtrippodcast. For Frontline Education, I'm Ryan Estes. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Thank you.